Welcome to Frontline Defenders Rights on the Line podcast, presenting the voices, perspectives, and experiences of human rights defenders at risk and focusing on human rights issues across the globe. Gaps in state-reported data on land and environmental rights defenders negatively and severely impacts the ability to monitor and mitigate situations where human rights defenders are at risk. In 2020, frontline defenders reported that 331 human rights defenders were killed, 69% being land and environmental rights defenders. But official data on killings remain limited, while there is even less data on physical and other types of lethal attacks on defenders. Welcome, Eva and Carol. Um, yeah, we had to chat today about the crucial CAP report and the CAP that is found in terms of data of attacks and killings on land rights defenders. So, Eva, I'm going to begin with you. If you can tell me a little bit more about the crucial CAP report. Um, what was the what was the purpose of the report and what was the main crucial finding that came out of there? Sure, thanks. And thanks for having us and, and giving us an opportunity to talk about this report. Um, so I, uh, the, the, the Crucial Gap report, um, it was work done um, by the Allied um, data, data Working Group and with the goal of really characterizing the gap in, in what we know, the data that's currently available on attacks against human rights defenders and more specifically on land and environmental defenders, which is what the group um, works together on. Um, and this was really motivated in part by, by the work we're doing among civil society organizations to align um, and better coordinate our data collection efforts. And in doing so, we often find ourselves talking about the need for this data for it to fit better together, to, to paint a broader picture of the, the scale of violence we know is being perpetrated against these defenders. And really felt that to, to contextualize that, we, we, we needed to understand what governments were reporting, what official data was saying about the situation that we were ourselves trying hard to map. Um, so we had done something similar with, with the Land Momentum Group through the International Land Coalition. And this allowed us to look at um, violence against defenders in uh, uh, an accepted, well-known international developmental framework, which was Agenda 2030, the Sustainable Development Goals. So this was a framework that UN member states had agreed to, and they had agreed within this framework to, to monitor uh, an indicator looking specifically at, at um, violence against defenders. So we wanted to know how that was going, what data was available, what governments were reporting, what could we find there, and this acting in, in a way as a backdrop, right, for, for the work that civil society is doing to, to map that violence. And we really felt, well, we found, and, and the title of the report says a lot, that there was a crucial gap in official data, data that was available, data that was being reported through the UN was very limited. Um, it was not able to show us uh, the violence being being perpetrated at country level. We could only see aggregate numbers 
numbers. Um, and, and that if we looked at the voluntary national reports, so these are the reports submitted by the government against these sustainable development goals, against those indicators, that only 10 countries had reported any data at all since 2015, when the SDGs were agreed upon, were, were endorsed, um, and that only three had reported that at least one human rights defender had been killed um, in, in, in the four years uh, since this framework had, had, had uh, since reporting had begun, which was just, you know, very different than what we knew um, was was happening on the ground. So, so we may have expected a gap. We didn't expect to find such a gap, um, and in the process, learned a lot about the the way data would arrive um, to the SDG framework, be reported by the UN, and kind of where 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 the, those roadblocks were, why it wasn't happening. The main finding of the report was that that we don't have data, we certainly don't have enough data, the richest of data consistently reported across countries in a way that would help us better protect defenders. Thank you so much for, for explaining that to us, Eva. And Carol, I'm gonna I'm going to jump the next question onto you in terms of, you know, why is there such a big gap in reporting when it comes to land rights defenders um building on on what eva has said what are what are some of the other barriers and obstacles you know in various contexts um that hinders that data collection yes no thanks very much i i think it's a it's a tough question and it's not all countries are you know fit into the same mold there, there are various reasons. Um, you know, it's quite clear that the state-led reporting in many countries is led by human rights institutions uh, who may not have either the capacity or the ability to collect the data, but, you know, in some cases. But we also saw countries in where they have a robust framework like Colombia or the Philippines um, who actually collect pretty good data and they do publicize it and publish it. So there's, they're, they're, you know, they're countries with no capacity or limited capacity. They're countries that because of the lack of a mandate to collect them, so anything requiring to collect them that they don't collect that sort of data. Uh, they're, and there are also cases where countries are very good at collecting data. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing for us is, is the fact that the UN data is really civil society data. And the, the fact that countries, even with this, you know, international framework that says they must collect this data, they haven't created national level frameworks that mandate the collection of this data in any way, in many cases. Um, and so this causes this gap to persist. And, you know, we really believe that what you don't report and collect you you will be less likely to monitor and address, and I think that is the issue that is happening really across the globe, and that's what the report really tries to 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 lay a foundation to to try and build on the basis of where we currently are, and say, you know, every year subsequent to this, we really need to see countries stepping up and fulfilling the SDG requirement, even though it's a voluntary requirement. They need to be reporting. Uh, disaggregated data to the UN in such a way that we understand in countries across the world, you know, where these attacks are happening, you know, how many defenders are being killed, how many are attacked, you know, threatened, intimidated, 
um, even imprisoned or criminalized, it's really important that countries start collecting this data and disaggregating it. So we have a real picture of how to have a solution at country level or even regional levels, um, because without the data it becomes really, really difficult to track trends and um, you know, try and prevent attacks. And in context where civil society, you know, is either weak or not present and also attacked or targeted um, for actually carrying out sorts of um, data monitoring work, you know, are there, are there other solutions? Are there other mechanisms um, available to kind of fill that gap? Yeah, that's, it's a good question. And, and I mean, to, to echo Carol, it, it depends so much on on the country and the setup um kind of kind of where that data could be could be coming from and i i guess again looking looking back to the report we did see and and we see that this data can come from a number of mechanisms, right? It can come from um, OHCHR, right? The, the Office of Human Rights, the UN Office of Human Rights can be doing its own monitoring work. We have special procedures. Um, we have special rapporteurs that are monitoring these situations and issuing their own, their own reports. Um, we also, you know, see that that media plays a role in a number of countries um, that they have stepped up. We think of Tierra Resistentes, which is doing a lot of this monitoring work from a journalistic perspective in Latin America. Um, but it's it's it, it it's a question of having those those mechanisms in place and that they're able to operate freely. Um, Carol mentioned the NHRIs, um, these independent bodies that that could also be doing data collection. Um, to what extent have these regional human rights mechanisms, right? The the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, um, African Commission on Human Rights, others, if they've um, in some way integrated data collection into their mandate and are carrying that out. Um, but but ultimately, if, if, if civil society is not able to operate and uh, freely collecting that data or is facing threats in doing so, and the government isn't, you're, you're looking at international right processes, statements, missions um, to, to cover that gap. So, you know, in some contexts, there are obviously strong authoritarian governments that exercise, you know, those limits and controls over access to data and, and data collection itself. And um, do you have any insights on, on how that is managed? Um, and if you can give, you know, some examples of, of where this has been a barrier um, to data collection in a context that you perhaps have worked on. I think Eva would be better to answer that question, actually, because um, she's gotten into the weeds of data in, in certain countries that do have authoritarian, authoritarian governments. <laughs> sure. Eva, do you want to go ahead? Um, yeah, I, that's that's also a hard one um, because, yes, I, I, so, sure, yes, in general, I mean, in, in contexts where where you have authoritarian governments, you're going to see an overall restriction on access to data, right? So you might not not know what's being what's being collected. It might be that no data is being collected at all. Um, it's important, you know, again in 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 these scenarios, maybe more so that that there are independent bodies that are able to monitor these these situations, um, and and through the SDG 
framework, we were really looking at how governments were presenting their own progress, how governments were reporting their data, and we saw how how wildly that that the the nature of that reporting could could kind of um, diverge. Let's say sometimes from the spirit of the indicator, um, you would see you know, on, on SDG reports focused on SDG 16, peace, uh, inclusive societies. And, and you wouldn't, you would, you would hear about the government's, um, let's say progress on certain, um, goals, but human rights aren't mentioned. Um, and, and that's something, you know, a topic and, and the, the programs and the policies and consequently the data collection that happens around that is often a reflection of, uh, a, a government's priorities or, or, or lack of priorities. So, um, you're working in the dark in a lot of those situations. You don't know, um, what's going on. The, the civil society climate, um, you know, can be extremely hostile, that, that civic space is limited. And so the ability of independent um, civil society led, even international missions becomes very difficult. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And it obviously goes beyond just data collection, you know, impacting on, on, on accessing, um, on accessing contexts and, and other things to, to provide assistance. Um, so you know, coming to the to the the crux of what we what we are talking about, um, in terms of land, you know, uh, I would like to hear both of your thoughts on this. But why do you think so many, you know, land rights defenders are being killed and attacked? And and what does this say, you know, about the broader meaning and the broader picture of what land means? Sure, I I think environmental land defenders are so much at risk because they they actually are challenging some of the most powerful uh, development, industrial, mining, extractive companies around the globe. And often these con companies are protected by government. And they also could be challenging in many, in many cases, you know, for the protection of forest or territory that houses, you know, rare minerals or, you know, has uh, tree, you know, forests that have been, you know, have grown for centuries that is now that, you know, companies want to use for um, in, you know, kind of industrial agricultural development or logging. So they really are challenging, you know, supremely powerful and rich actors in the work that they do. And, and that in itself makes their work so dangerous because challenging those powerful actors to to you know their right they're, that they don't have a right to take land that has been for centuries um, lived upon by indigenous um, peoples or challenging the fact that a dam will destroy the habitats and their cultural and um, economic livelihood um, is is put is pitting themselves against you know dangerous kind of you know making their work very dangerous and I think. We, we still, even though there's a greater awareness and recognition of that fact, I think it hasn't changed either systems, institutions, or the way in which we govern natural resources. And so that is really what, you know, makes it so difficult, makes the context so important, and it's so difficult um, to stop and prevent attacks and threats. Uh, the fact that Global Witness just this year released this report in 2020 that said, you know, four environmental land defenders a week 
are being killed and that's not even you know capturing you know intimidation threats criminalization even rape of women um, for the work that they do. It's not capturing that. It's just astounding that even with all the work that so many groups are doing, we haven't been able to to kind of change that, that local context of how do you ensure that people who protest, people who, who are, have every right to, to say, to defend their environment, to defend their land, should be able to to protest or speak out or take action to stop that is is really you know a testament of how far we really need to go. Um, these ec ecosystems we know are so important for climate biodiversity, but it still has not meant that the, that there are systems that can protect those who stand in defense of these in so many countries. Um, we also know that, you know, agribusiness, logging, um, hydroelectric damming, even mining and mineral are some of the sectors that are the most at risk. Uh, and, we, you know, we know this because civil society is collecting the data. This is what is so shocking. You know, if you can't, if you have a report that basically says, and this is what our report says, that um, there is a voluntary framework for reporting killings of human rights defenders. And we know that from this report now that fewer than 2% have reported killings. That is that is a baseline of where we are and how far we need to go, I think. It just shows that the, even the basic thing about reporting is not being done, much less changing institutions, minds and hearts, the way we govern natural resources. And so I think for me, the report, it just provides a baseline. It provides a baseline of action that needs to be taken. Um, and we're not saying that collecting data prevents environmental or land defenders from being killed, attacked, or threatening. But we're saying that at a minimum, governments need to start there and build the institutions to understand why these defenders are being attacked, to co collect the data so that they can start understanding who is threatening, why did this happen, and start systematically addressing this. So that is the real importance of this report that Ava has, has written. Sure, thank you. Thank you so much for, for those insights and also a lot of what you're saying points towards, you know, at the heart of it, it's about money and it's about capitalism. Yeah, no, if I, if I could, if I could just, yeah, quickly add and, and absolutely that the power imbalance that, that Carol mentions is, is an important one. Um, the inequality that we see laid on top of these questions of, of land conflict, natural resource conflict, um, and you know, so much of our work looking at, at, at land and land tenure is is trying to understand how to provide more secure tenure rights. And as, as Carol also mentioned, these governance regimes, right, frameworks that would provide for a diverse understanding of, of tenure security that could account for different claims to the land through time. And as as land is, is understood and natural resources on that land as, as this rich resource for exploit, right? That the in on on laying on top of what are sometimes um, unclear or conflicting claims to land, you have this competition for, for the land itself and the resources and the, the economic potential, right? The financial aspects of that land. So there's this, this very, you know, valuable 
um, natural resource that communities have been living on, depending on their livelihoods, depend on, you know, the, their communities have, have built um, entire lives, you know, through generations on um, coming into conflict with these powerful actors, often backed by, by important actors in the government. So this conflict, I think, often falls there, often, unfortunately, falls far from, from where reporting has happened. And as we know, another thing that, that came through through all of this reporting is that this violence is systematically underreported. So we're talking about um, low estimates, right? All of the estimates are likely um, a, a, much less than the violence that's actually happening and not able to accurately capture the non-lethal violence that precedes the killings, right? The threats, um, the, the, the death threats, the attacks that we know um, often precede the killings. I think you guys have, you guys have actually answered the other questions um, through, yeah, through some of your other answers. Um, so I just have one more from my side, um, one more question for Carol in terms of, you know, your, with your background working um, in government, do you have any specific insights, um, you know, as to why from a, from a government's perspective, you know, there's an issue um, with the data gap? I mean, in many cases, we, we assume it's because of, you know, authoritarian governments, but could it be in some cases simply a lack of infrastructure, a lack of funds, um, you know, beyond just authoritarian governments are the are the other reasons why there are gaps um in terms of data on human rights defenders yes no i i i think there there there's a lot to to go into in that question because i know that in some countries you know one issue could be as simple as the lack of coordination between a ministry of environment with a justice department with the police, uh, with human rights state institutions, just, you know, the lack of having a way to, you know, systematically collect the data and even, you know, have national definitions of what a, an environmental and land defender is. You know, even just thinking through how do you collect that data? Is it by civil society or the public reporting the data? Is it by the defender themselves coming forward, um, understanding that even sometimes reporting a threat can put a defender at issue and thinking through how to address issues like that. So there can be some very, um, you know, what you could almost think of as simple reasons why data is not collected and not collected well, uh, that can be overcome with some, some detail looking at supporting a human rights institution to do this better. As you said, it can also be as simple as not having a budget or not uh, being um, clear as to the the type of you know data to exclude, uh, you know, so simple reasons can hinder or be barriers to collecting this data, as much as very complex reasons that uh, you know having this data being reported uh, and accepted by government uh, also means they have to act. In, you know, many governments, the fact of just not reporting means it cannot be perceived as a real issue. And I recall in more than one country, actually, and many civil society organizations saying to us who collect data that the government says that 
you know, a def- an environmental land defender is not being specifically targeted because they're just living in a very dangerous area. You know, they, many governments have in fact said that, and it's not that we have a problem with environmental land defenders. It's just that they're living in an in you know area with multiple you know dangerous criminal activities and it's just not the case it's not the case but you know governments are able to say that they're able to say that as a defense because they don't want to address this issue i i believe in many cases um and so it's easier to deny that it's a a problem that's caused by a natural resource or a land conflict um, if they don't put these systems in place. So that, that's a more complex reason why you will not have governments wanting to collect that data. So I think there's just such a range of reasons, and in some cases barriers, uh, why this data is not being collected. And, you know, we, at Allied, one of the things why we did this report is we really wanted to see how could we take a baseline and then measure it year after year to see, you know, what work could be done to actually overcome those barriers, support um, both civil society to engage and campaign for governments to do better, and also for a monitoring tool to basically indicate which governments are not doing enough. Um, because there are governments in the South, you know, that are collecting this data, so it can be done. A very interesting framework um, that we hope will actually also help in the collection is the Escazú Agreement um, in Latin America and the Caribbean, for instance. You know, Colombia and Mexico and even Brazil have very high numbers of killings of environmental and land defenders. And with this new regional treaty, which has a provision that requires government to do more to protect uh, environmental, what it calls environmental human rights defenders, hopefully it can also be a framework where governments have to start reporting this because without that, we will not know that they're taking action to seek to protect and ensure that defenders are not harmed for their for their actions. So I, for one, am very positive about the future. I think that uh, with this, we, there's more mechanisms for us to to try and push for governments to to put in place the right mechanisms to actually get this done um, and and really increase the capacity of human rights institutions to to have them reporting this on a yearly basis. To add what what Carol said, because I I do think that there are plenty of examples of of reasons where, you know, where people are are working together and and seeing reasons to be optimistic about how this could improve. Um, There's this, you know, increasing recognition that with this gap in government reporting, um, there are some, you know, cases, there are some, some good practices out there. There's also this recognition that it's it, it's not going to be a single data source, or not yet at least. So this recognition that civil society has an important role to play. Um, right now, it's providing the majority of the cases that are being reported by the UN through through an internal validation process. But that's something. It recognizes that crucial role that civil society is playing, and at the same time, doesn't deny that this is ultimately, you know, the responsibility of the state tied to to human rights um, agreements that that they've signed and, and
and mandates in many cases that, that they have in place. So OHCHR, which is the custodian of this indicator together with ILO and UNESCO, um, they're working closely with a number of governments and national human rights institutes, as, as Carol mentioned, the Global Alliance of National Human Rights Institutes, GANRI, has put data collection as an explicit goal in their global action plan, and they're working closely with OHCHR. So they're recognizing that NHRIs can be a really important um, independent monitoring body that could provide this data, not only for the indicator, but with, with the ultimate goal of monitoring the situation and, and better protecting these defenders. Um, and, and that civil society needs to continue to be involved, but supported, recognized for their contributions, um, but, but that we can't continue to rely only on civil society to report on this situation. It needs to be increasingly owned and, and mandated, implemented, and resourced in monitoring mechanisms led by the state. Thank you. Thank you both for, that, for those explanations. Um, one more question I had um, as you were speaking is to, I don't know if you would be able to answer it, but um, are you able to kind of, um, you know, compare with uh, the, date, the data gap in terms of land rights defenders? You know, is it much bigger than, you know, the general data gap in terms of other, you know, human rights defenders working on other issues? Hmm. Uh that's a good question. Um, we can't actually differentiate land and environmental defenders from other kinds of human rights defenders in the data as it's reported. So um, in, in some cases, and this goes back to the need to, to understand different groups, to collect information that would allow us to better characterize who is most vulnerable, what individuals, what communities, you know, what kind of organizations are. Um, but that kind of information um, about affiliations, areas of work is not reported. So it may be that some countries allow us to appreciate um, those differences more, but the way it's reported globally, the way it's um, reported in the frameworks of the SDGs, we, we see an overall gap. We They've said that, that, you, that, you know, they've provided an estimate that half of all of the cases are land and environmental defenders, including indigenous peoples' rights um, defenders. But no, there's no way to further distinguish if that's a bigger or smaller gap. I think okay. the only thing that I would say is that um, the data working group, and maybe Eva, this would be better for you to say, um, so maybe I'll just push it back to you. Maybe you could mention just, um, you know, the the scope and the scale of groups that are part of the the um, the data working group and their, a little bit about their work on the global data set and why they're doing that. Maybe you could just mention that briefly, linking it to to the fact that we want to do a global data set and why, <laughs> because there's, there's this gap. <laughs> right, yeah, so the, the, the Allied Data Working Group has, has been working on, on this topic, as I said, coming at it from a different angle. Um, we're a, a, a subset of organizations um, that are part of the Allied Coalition that work with data, either collecting data, um, centralizing data, um, mobilizing data in some way in our work. Organizations that had an interest as well in, in creating data sets out of information they were collecting. Um, 
or improving the way that they collect data. So we, we recognized that um, early on that a lot of us were looking at the same cases or trying to track the same patterns, right? Um, and, and some were doing that on a global level, right? The global witnesses, the frontline defenders, Business and Human Rights Resource Center, these global data sets that are aiming to give us that, that um, integrated picture of, of these patterns across countries. Um, regional efforts as well, we have some partners in, in Asia, Landwatch Asia, Forum Asia, we also consulted with that are looking at this regionally, Tierra de Resistentes, as we mentioned in, um, in Latin America. And then really the, the value um, and, and the focus of our work has, has been the local organizations, the local data collectors that often give us the, the richest, right, um, densest uh, picture of the scale of violence happening on the ground. And wanting to bring these, these data collectors at different levels together to see if there were a way that we could look at a common set of, of variables, of information, right? Um, to see to, in a way that would allow us to look at our data sets together, um, integrated and, and try to put together um, different pieces of, of this puzzle, knowing that there are advantages of those working at the global level in terms of their coverage um, and, and those working at, at the most local level, having direct um, contact with, with defenders, the communities that they're in, whatnot. So we're building an integrated database doing this. We, we've built a, um, a shared template that would allow us to integrate diverse data sets and look at them together and then, um, you know, filter and analyze them according to, um, yeah, ethnicity, area of work, um, natural resource being defended. We're looking more and more at a climate subset, trying to understand, you know, what we can say about climate defenders. So that we've we've found that. Um, you know, this process has been really useful to us. We've been learning a lot from each other in 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 the the steps that we've taken to build this integrated data set, and always with the hope that better, more integrated data will give us, um, you know, a, a better picture of the the violence that's happening, um, a better understanding of patterns, perpetrators, um, and and protection mechanisms that could work better. Yeah, wow. This, this sounds like a really important um, project and, and mechanism and tool that I think will be extremely useful uh, going forward. And I hope it. I hope it's successful and can contribute to to filling that crucial gap. Thanks, Isha, for. I mean, data. It you know, it's 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 good that we practice talking about data and giving it life and making sense mm -hmm. of it. You know, because I I think. People worry that if we talk about data, we're we're heading into the weeds, and of course we do do some of that. But you know, it's um, yeah, the the report was well received by a lot of the actors that were named here, and that you know that was really good. Mm -hmm. We want to have a conversation, and as Carol said, yeah. it's a starting point. Let's hope things continue to get better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rights on the Line. Visit www.frontlinedefenders.org to listen to other interesting episodes. Subscribe and share.